This morning, I want to cover some, quite a little bit of ground, but at the same time, I'm not going to do what would be normal for me. We're going to watch a little video in just a moment. And this video is Bob Mumford. Uh, you've seen him before up here. Bob is 86 years old now. And I know a lot of history of where he began and, and surrounding it. I know people that have actually been in the services where some things happened. Bob and his group were a part of the original ones that, at least in our generation, that, that got the idea of, of uh, relational theology going in the relational churches. And because there were some that were attracted to the relationships, but they had an agenda that this relationship would build their influence and their ministry. It went very, very wrong at one point. And I know one man personally that sat in the services up in Chicago when they had to stop and regroup. And he talks about the weeping. Because they saw something real and they knew they had messed it up. I know another man that was actually in the service is Mark Drake is this guy, and he, he might tell us that sometime, but he was actually in the services down in Florida when Bob was asked to preach, Bob Mumford, and Bob's one thing that he required for him to preach in that gathering of more than 3,000 pastors was, I won't preach unless you allow me to publicly make things right with a man that I know is there. And the accounts of the deep, deep move of God that happened because he insisted he would not stand before them unless first he could make right what he had done wrong with someone relational. So out of that, as Bob is definitely looking at the end of his life, comes these little scripts that he's able to put out from time to time talking to us about what's most important. So let's take just a minute, or a few minutes, and watch what he has to say here. When I was in seminary, um, I <coughs> learned a vital distinction between systematic theology and what is called biblical theology. Systematic theology tries to put it all in categories. That's the way we've lived for the last 150 years. Uh, biblical theology starts with the story in Genesis and unfolds. And when it comes to uh, the most powerful, one of the most powerful books in the scriptures is Malachi. And um, God is grieved and uh, 
he says something that everyone needs to hear, which is, um, if you read Malachi, he keeps saying, where is the love and where is the affection? Mm -hmm. I, I wanted a family and uh, you've given me everything but a family. And then he says something that deeply moving to me, which was, I'm going to come and smite the earth with a curse. And there's 430 years of absolute silence from heaven. God does not speak a word until John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, uh, he has come. The one that we have waited for has come. And and uh, if you would allow me, I would like to say that isn't theological, that's relational. Mm -hmm. We sat in darkness and, and theology can make us sit in darkness. Yeah. Theology doesn't always bring a salve or a healing to our loneliness. God the Father uh, turns his face away from a corrupt and injurious civilization. I will smite the earth with a curse. And 430 years, and then suddenly there's a sound. John the Baptist has come to say, he has come, and the one that has come is Christ, Jesus Christ. Now listen carefully. It isn't just Jesus Christ. It's God in Christ has come to reveal himself and to reconcile himself to a hurting society. The pain of society and civilization is we've lost our father. The world, civilization, doesn't have a father. And Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will take you to the father. And the redemptive act is relational, not theological. It's a relational journey where I am turned my face toward him and he has turned his face towards me and our gazes meet and engage. And the goal, forgive me, but the goal is for every believer to have a father of their own. If you don't have a father of your own, you're missing the benefits of Christianity and what it means. And I started to get to know him. I turned my face toward him. And when I turned my face toward him, I found my affections turning toward him. And, when, and when, when, when my affections toward him, then I understood my love for him began to change my behavior. I, did. I, I don't want what's in the world. I want 
what Father provides. And it isn't, it isn't doctrinal. It is, a, it is a relational reality which comes from his initiation. He initiated towards us in the person of Christ. This person, incarnate agape, his job description is to take us to him. And that comes. I turn my affections, I turn my face, I turn my affections, and then I turn my behavior. It, it affects every piece of my life and every decision that I make. I like the way he says doctrine. <laughs> it's like it's a bad taste in his mouth. And I, the re one reason that I laugh when he says that is because I know that this man has written probably more doctrinal statements than any man I know, but it's all in the, in the realm of relational theology. And folks, there's, there's so much about that, that that we'll probably be doing over time. If you, I know it wasn't, wasn't possible because it was in Columbia, but if you could have all been at the uh, ordination service on Friday night. Doug Craigbaum done a masterful job, and I'm not saying it just because he's my friend, but he done a masterful job of talking about uh, pastors rather than hirelings. And it was just something that, as we looked around the room, there were representatives from most of the churches that we work with in the Midwest. And it's just, you know, you ever been in one of those family reunions where you look around and realize that, man, I'm really a part of something. It might not be the something you'd like to be a part of at the time, but you're part of something. And realize the, what you're going to leave behind. I remember talking to my grandmother one time, and she was 90, 91 at this point, and she had a little uh, two-bedroom, two-bath, single-wide, uh, single like 16 foot wide uh, mobile home trailer that she lived in for the, for the later years of her life because she, she really didn't even need that, but it was all she needed. And that thing was crowded with over a hundred of her children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. And I stood beside her and, and said, Granny, do you ever think that this is all your fault? And she started laughing and she says, I'm aware of that sometimes. I might have to repent. <laughs> so she and I had some good talks, especially after I started getting my life cleaned up because I realized that she had been wanting to see that in a lot of her grandchildren for a long time. It's amazing what you find out after you get the blinders off and realize that there's been people praying for you forever. So this thing about relational building is what I want to talk about today. I, I'm not going to go all the way back to Bob's time, but I just, I just want to start with some of my own experience and how it was brought into this house. Because I realize that we have people coming and going, and when we have people coming, they need to be reminded of where we came from. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Paul's writing, he said, not that I have already obtained it or already become perfect, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ. That, if there's any 
one verse in the Bible that reminds me consistently it's that verse that not only have I laid hold of something but to get here I was laid hold of by Christ that there was something that happened in me and, and when, when I hear people talking about their the misery of their life and you know what there, there's a lot of misery in our life and even the secular psychologists are starting to recognize it. But they talk about their, their misery in their life and they say, I'm saved, but... And they start talking about this stuff. And I'm, I'm thinking, maybe I should say it, I don't know, but I'm thinking, no, because saved means that he'll take us from our sin. And our sin is what, what causes this, this uh, separation, this misdirection. And if you're still in that, you probably don't know yet. And it'd be really good to figure that out. Because being a part of the house of God is much different than just acknowledging him. The Bible says demons believe and tremble at the thought of the salvation that's provided for us. So um, when, my, when I first got saved and I want to say it that way I I looked at it for some time yesterday thinking do I want to say that or do I want to dress it up a little bit in more modern terms and I want to tell you I got saved um, was no no doubt about it I I was on a track that wasn't good and I had already come beyond ever thinking that I was going to get a life change by saying a sinner's prayer because I'd been in Pentecostal services. I was raised around a Pentecostal church and in a Pentecostal church. I knew what it was to get saved every couple of weeks. You know, go up front and say the prayer. And, 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 you know, preachers would say things, and, well, you might have to ride this altar to heaven, but you'll get there. And you know what? There was no satisfaction in that. So by the time that God really got hold of me, I was beyond just saying a sinner's prayer. I didn't fully understand, but I knew that there was a new way of life, and it was a way of life that something in me had been reaching for for a long time. I knew that when I talked to God, and it wasn't just a sinner's prayer, but when I talked to him that first time in a long time, I knew that I'd something changed right there. And it was continuing to change. Like Bob was talking about, I, I began to turn my thinking. I began to turn my face toward God. And but at, at that time, I was majorly shut down emotionally even more than I am now. So I see some of you smiling. But I, I can't tell you it was a big emotional deal. But something enabled me to decide that I would pursue God. And that something had to be God because I'd never made that decision before. At then, at that time, I, I prayed what's what, not really a smart prayer, but something to the effect of, God, I know I've done everything that would separate me from you. And I don't know if you'll even have anything to do with me. But I don't want to serve the devil. So I'm going to do my best to serve you. And if I go to hell, I'm going to go to hell serving you. That's how little I really knew. But that's the way I prayed that morning out in the woods. And God began to awaken something in me. And I had an expectation that God would take me from that life to something better. And I want to tell you that getting God in your life is more 
than just attaching him to your current life and hoping it turns out well. If you will allow him, he will change you. But my willingness to change started to build a hunger in me. And it seemed to me just reasonable that this hunger could be satisfied by studying what he had given us to study. And when I say study, at that point, I didn't know what study was. But I just read the thing, and read the thing, and read the thing, and read the thing. And I'm telling you, some of it's boring. Some of it's so boring. But even then, I was a reasonably disciplined person. And I just kept reading it, kept reading it, kept reading it. And those things would begin to, to, to change in me simply because I was seeing this grand story of God. And I just want to challenge you to stop looking at this as a book of doctrine. This is the story of God and his dealing with his people. And he's inviting you into his story. And I would challenge you as you're, as you're talking with people about salvation to get away from... Now, they do need God. But get away from that fact and talk to them about how there is a deficit in the body of Christ on this earth until you begin to turn your heart toward him because you're part of what's going to make this thing complete. That the body of Christ needs you. Just like I need every finger. We need them. And when we begin to lay hold of them in that way, it will cause them to think differently. Wait, what's the meaning of repentance? Think differently. <laughs> so, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22 says this, Now flee from useful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You see how that sets out something for Timothy? Now, Timothy was already a young a young leader for sure and he was he was already moving in things of bringing order into churches and Paul made it made it a point to tell Timothy there's some that are more pure of heart than you pay attention to what they say because you're in a process of being purified you're in a process you the things that Timothy learned traveling with Paul and if you look he did travel with Paul and quite extensively he, he learned from his mother and he learned from his grandmother those things mattered but even with that Paul was saying Timothy there's those that are more pure in heart than you and you need to listen to them you need to let them teach you you need to let them bring you on not that, but what I really like is he said, Timothy, I'm leaving, you in this, I'm leaving you in this place where I'm telling you I want you to appoint elders there and I want you to bring order. But Timothy, flee youthful lust. Those things, no, no, don't get sex in mind. That might have been part of it, but probably wasn't by this time in Timothy's thing. But those things that the youth desire so strongly want to be known. I want to be seen as a powerful person. See, this is how it shifts when you, when you begin to move in the realms of God. It shifts from wanting to have fun and be crazy and, and do all kinds of things that, that gets the cops on your tail. It shifts from that to, I want to be somebody in the kingdom. I want to be known as a person that can preach. Timothy, few, flee youthful lust. 
flee that. Timothy, Timothy, flee that. Timothy, you're already established somewhat, but you need to flee that thing because recognize that there is an eternal danger that you need to flee from, and that is the ideas of our own. Get away from it, and it, that really means to recognize that, that there is an eternal danger and to get away from it and to pursue something on purpose. You, when you're fleeing, you're, pers you're pursuing as well as getting away from you're pursuing safety. You're pursuing whatever. And Paul was talking to Timothy about that. Find, discover measures that will contain that youth, youthful lust and go in that direction and stay in that direction all your life. Now, as I began to read the Bible, and I'm not going to go into detail, but I, I read this thing from cover to cover, from cover to cover, from cover to cover, from cover to cover. Each time was changing me. I, I was rough still on the outside, so rough that they, 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 almost nobody would allow me to, to have any kind of a, a, a word of any kind in a church service because, man, I didn't look right. And you know what? I still don't look right to some folks. I had some people not too long ago say they'd like for me to come to a church in New York State, but I couldn't wear my boots. And I said, well, then you don't need me. You find somebody that'll come otherwise, because this is kind of who I am, and that's what you get, and I haven't been there. <laughs> but that's kind of been, been the history, and I was thinking as Caleb was talking about my brother, how he and I, he's five years younger than me, and we both started together on the streets of Tulsa. He would have been accepted because he never went a long ways toward the things that I went toward. But uh, he would have been accepted, but instead he chose to do street ministry alongside me. And, and we actually went, and, you know, we had this thing in it. Well, let's go to the most dangerous places that people say nobody can go to and let's just see what God will do. And my goodness, did we see some stuff. But in that time, I began to look in this book and to just work it and work it and work it. And I looked at the churches that I was a part of at the time and what the New Testament laid out. And there seemed to be a consistent conflict between what I saw. And I'd been in the military. I'd learned to analyze a few things. And above all things, I had learned to lead. And, and whether people liked it or not, I was usually going to lead. I was going somewhere doing something. So that that thing was, was on me, and it wasn't all bad. It wasn't all good. But what I really realized is the people in the churches were genuinely trying. But they were trying to reproduce what Grandma had, and they were trying to reproduce what their idea of what Grandma had. But Grandma's already dead and gone. She didn't, have, she didn't have anything to say about this, and they were trying to interpret what she had or what... And I'm saying she because it was my grandmother that affected my family so much, and... And they, they were genu genuinely trying, but I realized that there were two models that were struggling with one another. One was the American business model, and the other was the religious model. Now hear me, I'm not saying the church model, but the American business model and the church model. Yeah, or the re religious model, yes, thank you. The religious forms and practice that, that were so insistent. The business model was getting into the church and is still getting in, saying, build for success, do whatever's necessary to sell your product. You might say, well, we don't, we don't sell a product, really? 
then why do we teach so in-depth to get somebody to say the sinner's prayer? And can I, can I tell you, as long as you're saying that I'm going to say a prayer, you haven't learned about praying yet. I'm going to say a conversation with you, Si. You see? Maybe for a while you should just say, I'm going to communicate with God. I'm going to see if God can give me a couple minutes to talk. And see how that changes you. But, but there was that model, and the relationships in that model only mattered if I could get something by having a relationship with you. Because I was really too busy to have a genuine friendship where we, where we hung out and got to know each other. But if you had relationships and people you knew that would help me to get on my journey, then I would, I would try to uh, glad hand you and, and smooth a little to, to get you to like me so that I could step on your back and get up a little bit. And as I started to lead, it eventually happened that, that you know, you, if you have a gift on you, people will recognize it, and, and they'll start to, in the religious model, they'll start to use you. And not only that, but I had this unique something. It's called the anointing, and I don't know why, but God would just, he, he would do something when I, when, when I worked with things, and people wanted that anointing. They didn't want my friendship, but they wanted that anointing. And we'll leave that for another message. But I, I would, began to go to meetings where um, we'd begin to talk, and people would begin to say, you know, this is, and they'd introduce me, this is a guy that, that we had in our service a couple weeks ago, and he's powerful, and these guys would come up, hi, I'm so-and-so, glad to meet you. But, you know, the next meeting, same people, they would come up and they'd stick their hand out, shake my hand and say, hey, doc, you know what I knew? They forgot who I was. They knew I had something they thought they wanted, but they had forgotten who I was. They didn't know me by name. They couldn't look at me and say, I see you. I really see you. But in the scripture, I saw it totally different. It wasn't that way. And I saw this, and I, there began to be a hunger. Like, like Bob was saying, there began to be a hunger in my heart. There, there began to be a love in my heart for what the scripture began to say. And there was a cry in me that said, something is not right. Something's not righteous about this. And it's not that everything was wrong. Because the people were genuinely trying. They were trying to reproduce what they thought was God, but they weren't getting their thinking from here. They were getting their thinking from church growth seminars and, and from people that had done a big work. While at the same time, there was, there was a man out in Phoenix, some of you probably know him, Tommy Barnett. I became friends with him at one point. He's, he got very busy, and it's very hard to, very hard to maintain that. But... but Tommy would, would tell us in a pastor's meeting because we were all trying to learn to do what Tommy was doing because, man, that church had grown faster than any church you can ever see. And he told us over and over again in those meetings, don't do what I've done. Why? He said, because I can just barely keep the back door a little bit smaller than the front door. He said, we're burning people out and we're sending them on. But he said, the problem is when you build with events and big meetings, you've got to have bigger events and bigger meetings. All that church is life. But he kept doing what he was doing. 
Why? Because he had people dependent on him. He had a huge payroll and, and all of that that had to happen. So had to keep doing bigger and bigger, burning people out, driving people away. And Tommy wouldn't mind me saying this because he would say it if he were here. But the thing is, is I, I saw all that and there's cry in me that says, that's not righteous. I'm constantly looking at the team here and thinking, now, I know they're all busy making a living, so how much are we asking them to do in the church? And how much family time do they have? We don't want to ask them to do this because they're already really busy and they need friendship time. They need family time. We don't have regular midweek services for that reason. We have periodic midweek services. But the reason we don't is I don't want a team driving themselves to make this building look good. I want them to have time to be out there working among themselves and to do things. Why? Because I learned this in the trenches. I learned this in response to a hunger that was in me. Um, so that began to cause me to just search the scriptures. And long before I met anybody else that was doing it, I was already, I was already trying to build under a, under a denominational flag. And uh, I felt like the service early on, I felt like the service is not supposed to be a designed ritual where people come as if it was a spiritual hospital. But the service is supposed to be a celebration of what God's doing in everybody's life. And I saw that. And I also saw that, that my job was, was not to gather more people that I could preach to, but my job was to equip you to go out. And those messages where, where it seems like you ought to be preaching something that causes people to be lifted up, no, I want to cause you to be equipped. Amen. <laughs> when you go out here and you read that over the, over the door that you're now in, entering your mission field, I want to get you to where you're excited about that. What's God going to do in my house tomorrow? What's God going to do in my business tomorrow? What's God going to do as I flip burgers tomorrow? What's God going to do? What's he going to do? Because you're equipped. And my job is to spark that. And I, be, I began to pursue that and, and realizing that, that there was a darkness that had settled over the church world that was a darkness that had been begun in American business and, and, in, and just religious things and it needed to be pulled back. And folks, can I tell you, that's what revelation is. It's pulling back the darkness so you can see the work of God underneath it. That's what it is. Not a big thing. Well, it is a big thing. But. So, like I said, I had tried to build within the denomination and it didn't work. And let's just leave it there, except I will say that there was some success there. But the problem was, every time that I would get out of the way, the denomination would kill it. <laughs> Why? It didn't look like them. It didn't look like them. It was a bug. You know, it's something, there was no way, no way for anybody to use it for a stair step. You couldn't say, now, if you go here and work here, that you can use it as a stair step, there will be something bigger open up. You couldn't do that. Why? Because it was relational. You say, how do they kill it? By seducing the leaders. You hear me? Going to the leaders and first of all threatening if you continue to build this way, I'm going to pull your license. And second of all, you get this thing back in order and there'll be another job for you down here that's bigger. 
And the people are crying out, what's happening? And what we began to realize is, it's got to be for freedom. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. It can't be. It can't be overseen or, or ordered by something that that is miles and miles away. It's got to be brought to order by people that work among it and people that knows the culture and people people that give their life to it. You know. I'm going to take a little bit of a rabbit trail here. Maybe a whole lot of one. Who knows? But in, in Corinthians, both First and Second Corinthians, you get a picture developing if you really study it. And you realize that there was probably another letter that we haven't found and, and put in the canon of scriptures that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Another thing you discover is that there were definitely some letters sent back and forth from the Corinthian churches to Paul. Now, as we get into 2 Corinthians, the Corinthian churches had had some of what Paul called super apostles come in among them. And they had had tremendous success with a hyper-charismatic church, which you can see that in Corinth as well, because Paul, trying to bring some order to this, come on guys, you can't do all of that. You can't, you, you got, got to get some order here. And then these guys had come in, and obviously they were having a lifestyle and a presentation far above what they thought Paul was doing. And so it looks very obvious that they had told Paul, we're not sure we want you back here. And he said, what, do I need a recommendation? After, I, I was a father in this house. Do I need a recommendation from somebody else to come to you? Said, yes, I've, I've been stoned, and not with weed. I, I've been stoned. Yes, I've faced execution and come through it. Yes, I've been lost at sea. Yes, I'm, I'm beat up. I'm, I, I'm dragging a leg or two. Yes, all those things are true, but, but, but if you want a recommendation, you're our recommendation because you're written on our heart. And it's you, your existence, that is a recommendation because you wouldn't even be here if I hadn't been through some of those things. And he said, I don't like to boast, but in this instance, I need to boast. I need to tell you that I don't need a recommendation to come and minister to you because you're written on my heart and it's always going to be that way. And he wasn't backing off. He wasn't saying, I'm going to live differently. I'm going to preach better. He said, no, I come so that the power will be in God and not in me. I don't give you pretty messages. I want the power to be from God and I want you to put your faith in that power. Your faith has to have a place of rest and if it can't rest in the power of God, then you got no faith. If your faith is in those messages and those pretty presentations, I'm not your man. And Paul let them know that this is, we're building something different from that. And he didn't say those super apostles didn't have a message. He didn't say that at all. <coughs> he said, that's not what I'm doing, and that's not where you came from. Now, how does that relate to us? You wouldn't believe the people that I've had come up to me wanting to do the revival thing. We, we want to have, I know this person. We, we should have them because they have this, this, and this. And I would say that's not what we're doing. And people that we would have thought would have hung with it because they had the picture they left. And other people come up, you got too much of that stuff going on. You talk about things like people being raised from the dead. We can't have that because we can't invite people into this. And my response is always, you'll probably find a place you can invite them to. But it won't be here. 
because we're going to talk about these signs following. Not that we follow signs, but we're going to talk about the signs following. And we're going to equip people to do that. And you see how this develops? That there is a way, there's a pattern, there's something we do. And, and that's, what we're, that's what we're doing, and that's, that's why we're here. So by a series of events, oh yeah, let me, let me go with this now. I, I scribbled this out, and I read writing a lot better than I write reading. <clears throat> What happened is even back then, early on, I began to find like-minded men and began to work with them. Some of them from the most outrageous places. Some of them from Australia. Some of them from South Africa. Some of them from various places. I, I just remember one particular man I, I met from South Africa and, and I asked him, what are you doing here in the States? And he said, God sent me here as a missionary. He said, the church has gone so badly wrong here. God sent me here as a missionary. And I was so humbled in that moment. God sending missionaries to the United States. Man, that shook me to the root of my being. And when we first started out in Tulsa, we worked alongside of him for a long time. But began to find like-minded like people because it, began, it started to happen that, that people, like I said, they would see the anointing and they would come up and they'd say, what are you doing? <laughs> Man, I'm looking for a city <laughs> whose builder and maker is God. Well, what's your plan? I'm going to get up in the morning and look for a city whose builder and maker is God. I'm going to work. I'm going to work toward that thing. That's my plan. You don't have a five-year plan? I'm not sure what I'm going to do tomorrow because I'm looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. And, they, you know, that intimidates some people. They, they don't know what to do with that. Well, well wh wh what will your ministry look like in five years? It'll look like the family of God because ultimately that's what fills that city is God's family. And that's what my life's going to look like in five years, 50 years, and until my death and on beyond is going to be building in a city that looks like the family of God. That's what it's going to be. How many of those families messy sometimes? Family's really messy sometimes, but they're still family. And we're not going to throw them away. I'm not. You might. But you know what? They're like a ping pong or like, like one of those little paddle balls. They'll bounce right back. You throw them away and bam, it'll hit the board again. Why? Because family's family. It has its marks and it's what we do. And, and you know, in the very beginning, boy, I don't have time to go through a lot of this stuff. But all, all the way in the chapter of Genesis, you can see traces of God saying, I just want a family. And that's what I'm building. That, that, that's what I created here is the start of a family. And it's there. You just have to look for it a little bit. But by a series of events and through relationship, I found myself in Kirksville attending what was then called the School of Tyrannus. And I wasn't just attending. I was one of the traveling elements out of there. And, and as churches would connect, I would go out to those churches and we would sit down with leaders and begin to develop relational leadership in churches literally all over this nation. Most weeks found me out traveling. Uh, I had a very, very crippled wife at home and Leslie gave her life to taking care of her. And, and I did when I was around, but I wasn't around a whole lot. But there was at that time 25 30 guys and we'd meet here in Kirksville every month once a month and we were pursuing the life as described in the Old Testament now 
I know all the stories that have been out there, and I'll tell you what, some of them are true. I mean, those families messy. And most of them, as a matter of fact, most of them are probably true. But we were encouraging and praying one another. So what happened? Some leaders developed the wrong idea that this was the group for them to, them, them to be in charge of, for them to run. They, they saw the people as their workforce, and, and they, they saw the, the people as a way to their vision. And they went badly wrong. Can you hear me? Instead of seeing people as family, they saw people as a way to get what their youthful lust desired, and they hurt a lot of people. Uh, they, and I have to say we, hurt a lot of people. Why do I say we? It's because we shouldn't have trusted so deeply. We should have confronted the thing and stopped it a long time before it ever came to a head. But the facts are that we were relational and we were willing to live it out. But there came a point when those that have gone so badly wrong were no longer willing to live it out. And we had to have one of those meetings like I described in Chicago where with a lot of weeping it had to break up and then but from that point now I want you to realize that from that point some of us didn't give up on it Doug Craigbaum myself and others uh, Doug and I've been friends for so long he's such a faithful friend but when it all started to break up here there's a group of people here that I was talking with and communicating with. Cy LaRoyce was one of that group and there were others. And Chelsea and I knew we were hearing God to come back here and start Christ Family Church. Started inside Cy LaRoyce's living room. I never, never go in that house without remembering. how we, we crowded that thing for a while. And then we moved to a place that's so easy for people to locate because we would tell them what the name of the, the building it was in. Yeah, it's something like that, but that's it. We started, we, we went to there, and we were the room right, right under the Bud Light sign. So when people said, how do we find you? Go inside, look to your left, the Bud Light sign, we're right under that sign. And we've been Bud Light people ever since. Not really. <laughs> Not really. But eventually we bought and started to resurrect this, this building, and it's been a process of resurrection. <clears throat> in the middle of that we were gathering people because like I said so many, had, so many people had been hurt and genuinely hurt but let me tell you what if you're still living under that hurt you need to just give it up leave it back there and go because that's, that stuff's gone but we, we worked with that and, and there were still a lot of us who we had a lot of history together. We loved each other. We knew that we weren't that kind of leader. I, I was thinking about that Friday night as I watched Doug do, his, do what Doug does. And I was thinking, man, this guy has been so faithful. And you'd never pick him out of the crowd to be an, an apostle in an international church movement. You'd never figure it out until you talk with him and you see the intensity that he has for the family of God. You want to get him emotional, start talking to him about the family of God and see what happened. But Doug in particular began to visit other leaders that maybe they could help us. Because we knew this thing wasn't supposed to die. And so 
Doug had the time and the, and the Pittsburgh church was, was supporting him in it and he began to visit and up in, I believe it was in Canada that he went to a meeting of the salt and light leaders. Uh, Barney Kuntz at that time I believe was still in charge and Barney's since passed on. Dave Richards was the second guy there in command and, and he met and talked with Dave Richards. Dave Richards agreed because Dave by this time already had 30 years of history around the world in, in building relational groups and working through leadership problems and Dave agreed to come and meet with us and, and just began to encourage us. He, he just saying, guys, you, you just got to forgive. You got to forget. You got to move on. You got to trust each other. You got to love each other. And down in Pittsburgh, Kansas, 13, 14, 15 years ago, I don't know. There was, all of us met. And in that meeting, we all knew we had to do something. And you know what, that meeting wasn't easy. That meeting wasn't pretty. Because there's some people that have been genuinely hurt. And we're trying, and leaders, that we were trying to work through this stuff. And I'm telling you, the depth of their pain was ugly. And we, we worked that through. And at that time, we were just starting Christ Family. And I knew, I just knew that I knew that I knew that, that we, had to, we had to somehow get these relationships healed up. But in that meeting, there was the first formation of Coast to Coast Family of Churches, which now stretches from actually Washington, excuse me, Washington, California, all the way into Raleigh, North Carolina, and some more in the East Coast, and particularly with some strength around the Midwest. And we have become the American branch, or the Central American branch of, of Salt and Light Ministries. Folks, the reason that we kept it up is because the, the relationships were worth it. The people were worth it. And I knew deep in my heart, and I said this to Doug over and over again, I don't want to be alone. God says it's not good for man to be alone. Damon and I talked about this many times. That we need to try to work this out because, because it's not good that we're alone. It, it's good that, you know, it, it, some, of the, some of the people that, that had agreed to help us and to help us with apostolic oversight here just, just dropped us like a hot potato because we were a hot potato. We were building here and working among people that were a wreck and, 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 and we had watched our own relationships be wrecked, but we kept building. And you know, the thing is, is through the process, it has all come back together. And I'm not saying, yay me. I'm just saying, I already had the picture in my heart and was going to give up on relational church building. And I wasn't going to give up on leaders that had a pure heart. That leaders that have no, they, they have no desire for position. They just want to help in the family. They, they want to give their life to, to developing and studying and equipping and Whatever, I knew those were there. So we began to work here while we worked in Mexico and along the border. And while we were hoping that God would open it up again in the reservations to the north. And guess what? God has done it all. And man, we have had some hard, hard times relationally. But it's worth it. 
I'm reminding of, uh, reminded of a man up in uh, Montana, Wyoming. Uh, he was outside of Wheatland. I can't remember the exact town, but he bought what used to be a very, uh, a very wealthy rancher's home that had been turned into a hospital and is now being turned back into a home. Beautiful place. The woodwork, the, the, the house above the foundation was absolutely beautiful. And he took me downstairs there one day and he said, he showed me all of the crumbling foundation. And he said, we've determined that it's going to cost almost as much as the house is worth to raise the house and put a new foundation under it. But I'll never forget his words. He said, but we've decided the house is worth it. And folks, I want you to know that's what we look at in churches when they start working with us. And they, they start asking to be a part because usually it's the leader's hearts that pull because they've been looking for a city and they're starting to see it. And they'll come and, and they'll want to be a part and we'll go and we'll look. And you know what we see? We see beautiful, beautiful people. And we're thinking, yeah, let's jack this up. <laughs> and not the normal thing, but let's, let's lift this off of its foundation to get in there and start to tear those old rocks out and put something new in. And I remember Clark Taylor talking to us about that years ago in, in leadership meetings, and he was building these kind of churches literally out of Australia all over the world, and he was part, him and his team was part of building over 300 churches that had never existed before. And he, talk, he talked to us about that. He said, the kingdom of God is not about memorizing scripture. It's not about going into a closet and saying the same old things all the time. It's about crying out to an almighty God that will help you to pull out the lies and insert the truth. And folks, that's what we do. That's who we are. And that, that's why we do foundational teaching is because there's still some stuff that needs to be torn out. I'm telling you that there are cultures of religion that have done more damage to the church of God than the darkness culture. And yeah, I'll mention them. The culture of ministry. The culture of revival. <laughs> well, really? Yeah. The culture of prosperity. And the culture of church growth. Those four things have done more damage to spiritual leaders than any powers of darkness has ever done. Because it's not about any of that stuff. It's about us living life together and God identifying and show us what his mission is in the earth and we live it with him. We go into it sometimes with our legs having close fellowship with one another, our knees knocking. But just in case, God will do something. We just go into it and see what happens. And we, we've got a a friend now in, in this general area and I'm not going to identify him at all but this guy touching something he wants but he's got so much of the old stuff in him it makes me want to go Ugh! When, when, when I see him trying to lead his people I'm going Ugh! but God says there's something in that guy he's hungry he keeps reaching back he, he, he keeps trying to form something that he's not sure of what it is and I hear the God the father of our family saying don't you dare push him aside don't you dare do that and I won't I'll go to him and I'll try to celebrate where I can celebrate him, where I can celebrate him. But in the meantime, we're going to start tearing out pieces of his foundation. Already doing it. Guess what? His wife got it ahead of him. <laughs> she's tearing out some foundation too. And he's seeing his identity go away and he's going, is there any place for me? Yeah. 
But there's only one thing we do, and that's promote the kingdom of God on the earth and, and live in, in relationship and knowing that we're going to do it forever. You say, what about end time doctrine? What about it? I don't really care. How can I say that? Because I'll be okay either way. Yeah. For now, I'm building the kingdom of God. Do I have a doctrinal stance that I would take on that? If I had to, I do. But why would I do that? Because it just caused more division. I found out when I can, if those of you that are in time people will understand what I'm saying. When I found out I could effectively argue pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-trib, I could effectively argue all three, and I probably didn't have the truth on any of them. So I started looking again. And wonder of wonders, I found it identified at the very first of Revelation. Didn't say it was a revelation of end times. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. Yeah. That changes everything. Hallelujah. But what if you're wrong? I'll be okay. Because I'm in relationship with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And he's saying, I want to be a father to you. I want you to know me. And Paul said, oh, all this other stuff is nothing so that I can know him. But, but if I'm going to do it, I've got to know his power, the power of his resurrection. And man, I, I'm, I'm going to have to enter into the fellowship of his suffering. I'm going to have to be, even be conformable to death because it's appointed that the man wants to die. And all of that has to be okay. Why? So that I can forget all that other stuff and know him and know him and know him. You know, this is very true among our group. You are our recommendation. One of the things that we do when we, we talk to a leader, and, and I'm one of them that moves out among them and talks to them, and one of the things I do is say, I want, I want to come to your church. I want, I want to just be there. Yeah, if I must, I'll preach, but I, I really want to be there. Why? Because if I were to put it in corporate terms, what have you built? I want to see it. But when I put it in relational term, I want to know your people. I want to see if they have the seed of Christ in them. I want to see if they love each other or if they're on that road to loving each other. That's what I want to see. And that tells me where we're going to go in these next conversations. You know what I want to see most of all? I want to see how that guy interrelates with his people. And if I see the heart of Christ in him, and you bet, we're going we're gonna to link arms and we're going to move forward and we're going to see where this thing goes. But if it's all about ministry, I probably won't have time next time. And I genuinely, I can say that genuinely because most of the time I don't. But folks, we make time for family. I hear people all the time saying, well, by the end of the day, I'm just too tired. How have you promoted family through your day? How does your life reflect the family of God on here? How does your life reflect the fact that Jesus won the battle between the devil and himself, between light and darkness? It's already won. How does your life reflect that? If you'll ask yourself those questions, it will cause you to turn your heart toward him, and you won't be playing, praying ritual prayers, then you'll say, God, reveal yourself to me. Lord, I, I want to know you more. I want to love you. And... and I, I pray this often even now, God, 
I'm not sure I'm capable of the kind of love that I want to have for you, God. Would you change me? God, I, I still find myself emotionally shut down at times, and I know I need to do something with that, but God, only you can do it, because I really don't want to become emotionally vulnerable, God. Any of you guys identify with that? And you know what he does? He just walks with me, and he touches me with his emotion. When, when I see somebody that he wants to touch, all of a sudden the emotion of God begins to touch me and I realize that God has compassion and he's reaching. But that doesn't mean I'm automatically going to lay hands on them and see a miracle. That means that he's reaching through me and I need to reach to see if they reach back. If they reach back, then we'll see what happens. Because I'm not going to assume I know what he's going to say. Because part of that revelation picture is me realizing the authority represented by the crowns of the elders, realizing the authority that I have, but putting it at his feet and saying, yeah, God, I know I've got that authority, but I ain't going to use any of it without you telling me to, without your bidding, without you working with me. And it causes those created beings to look at the work on earth and say, man, that's holy. <laughs> that's a work set apart unto God. And folks, I'm telling you, that's what it's all about, is that those great, so great a cloud of witnesses watches us, and they see us, and they say, oh, they're walking with Jesus. Their faith is started. It's going to be finished. They're holy. They're walking holy. Are they perfect? No, it's messy, really messy sometimes. I'm telling you, the cross was messy. It's really messy sometimes, but I'm not going to give up on the vision. I'm not going to give up because the vision is not mine. His vision was to have a family in the earth. That's what I'm going to live in. That's what I'm going to walk in. And sometimes family has to almost walk alone. And I can't fix it by exhorting them at uh, their, their behavior. But if I start to demonstrate God, he'll fix it. And folks, that's family. And that's the family of God on the earth. And this is us. This is us. This is us. You're our letter. You're written on our heart. And you can look around you and say, these people are my letter. They're written on my heart. You know what? It'll stop church division. It'll stop church splits because we'll realize we just got to jack up the foundation and tear another part out and build something under it because if I'm... If I am thinking that I've got to fix somebody, guess what? I'm wrong, period. I can see things and think, well, I'm going to ask God to work in this. And God, I'm aware that the work you might do is in me. But I'm going to ask you to work in it. And I'm just going to keep living life. and keep doing what I can do. Because I know if I try to fix it, I'll break it. And I know you can help me to fix it after that, but it's a lot easier, God, if I just walk this life and know that you'll fix it. Yeah, I'll be a part. And when it's done, it'll look forever more like I've done it. But I'll know I didn't. I'll know it's him. Because most of the things that God does through me, I'm just not that smart. I couldn't figure it out. But that makes you feel good to see him do it. You know, Samson didn't know how to kill that lion. But it roared up against him, and he did it. And when he came back later, he ate honey out of that carcass. And man, sweet victory. Sweet victory. Let me invite you to come and live in my victory. Because I have victory through Christ. You say, oh, you don't know what I'm facing. I don't care. 
You have victory through Christ. Come live in my victory. Let him touch you with the sweetness of victory. Thinking when Caleb was requesting prayer for my brother, I don't know how that's going to turn out. I haven't directly heard from God on that. I know he's fought a good fight. Maybe he's finished the course. I know he's kept the faith. But I also know that he has the authority of right relationships. He's got that crown of righteousness. And everything will be cool. Not if he goes, we'll miss him. But if he goes, we'll join him again. This is the way of it. This is life. Welcome to our world. We invite you to it, but let me tell you, we're not going to do anything different. We're smaller today than we were two years ago because people wanted to do something different. They wanted to be treated different. You ever had a child that threw a fit to get their way? We've had some of that happen. Guess what? They had to figure it out because we're going to a city. We're building a city. The builder and maker is God, but we're living in it, and we've got no other way to live. There's no other way to live. We'll walk through the messy, keeping our eyes on our Father, the Lord and Savior of our life. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. God, it's such a pleasure to me to be able to relax and know it's in your hand. And God, it's also a pleasure to me to look around me and see your work in so many people. God, there's those that would point out their flaws. I don't care about that. I see your hand in them. I see your work in them. I see that they're going somewhere in you. God, help us, help us, help us to acknowledge with each other, hey, you're a brother, you're a sister, you're a father, you're a mother. We're all part of the kingdom. And our work is to produce fathers and mothers who will produce sons and daughters who will produce fathers and mothers who will produce sons and daughters. That's our work. All within the confines of the household and the family of God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. God bless you. Thank you for coming.